0: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Neuroethics Police Podcast. This is the first episode of Season 2, and we have made some changes. New year, new season, new episode format, and hopefully we will keep on raising awareness and highlighting the importance of neuroethics together with you. So as I said, we have a new format this year. If you were used to us really doing a one-on-one interview, we will not be doing that anymore this season. It will be more of a co-host based episode. So together with new co-hosts, we will be discussing some interesting and emerging neuroethics topics. Starting with the first episode, today I have together with me two amazing co-hosts and they so happen to be also part of the team members of the Neuroethics Police podcast, please welcome Marielle Kalkash, our consultant, and Suzanne Kravitz, our content director. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello,
1: everyone. Thank you, Catherine, for having us. Yes, thank you.
0: So very, very happy to having those two ladies to discuss what is neuroethics and why it is important. So we received a lot of feedback throughout season one about really what is neuroethics. We talked about different neuroethic concepts but it was quite difficult to explain or break down in very simple terms what is neuroethics and why people should care. So if we can start by saying what is neuroethics, I mean if we look at the definition, neuroethics is really the the study of the ethical and societal implications of neuroscience research, but also practice, especially when we are talking about emerging neurotechnologies. And what does it mean to really have those neuroscience studies? And what does it mean when they become translated to the clinic? Do they hold any ethical or unethical consequences? Will they impact society and members of society, both you and me, in our daily lives? So if I ask you, Susan, what is neuroethics to you? How can you describe it?
2: So, you know, as you mentioned, when we're looking at neuroethics, there's there's really two different ways to kind of approach it. Um, one way, one scope would be looking at the neuroscience of ethics. So for example, you know, using neuroscientific techniques, where can you pinpoint perhaps ethical decision making in the brain or different brain regions associated with that? So that's one side of it. And then a little bit more to what you were speaking of would be the other scope, which is going to be addressing the ethical implications or considerations of neuroscientific innovations and technologies.
0: I like this two-scope approach. I mean, we normally think of neuroethics as maybe being, you know, one field talking about one thing, one message, one concept. But I mean, you very nicely explain how it's really more two scopes that are, I would say, in a way intertwined. And I think actually that brings me to Uh, Marielle, which came up with a very interesting analogy to this interaction between these two scopes. Maybe Marielle, you can explain to us what what is this analogy that you came up with to really better convey the definition of neuroethics?
1: I would like for you to start thinking of neuroethics as a wave. Okay, Imagine the ocean and from it, a tall wave emerges.
0: I think many, many surfers are going to be able to enjoy (laughs) it. Relate with that. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully,
1: hopefully more than surfers, but true for yeah. sure.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so imagine this ocean wave, and then this wave, this larger wave, is comprised of two waves. One larger wave, a strong wave, neuros- ethics of neuroscience or scope B. So let's just call uh, the wave the B wave. And this one, its force and relevance comes from the priority that we as humans and societies give considering ethical quandaries when developing science and technology. It is somewhat a consensus that this is important for the development of science and technology. So many nations and cultures engage in reflection on human rights and ethics when considering neurodevelopment. Now, going back to the analogy... Imagine scope A, or neuroscience of ethics or in ethics, as a smaller but very strong wave contained inside the larger wave. Yeah? Why, why is it smaller and contained, though? Because since the aim is to understand the very relevant and profound topics, such as moral conscience, free will, from a neuroscientific point of view... If there are wrong assumptions or conclusions made, their impact would be far, far larger. For example, imagine. Imagine ethicists and lawyers taking as true the claim of a reductionist neuroscientist saying that there is not such a thing as free will. It's all a brain illusion. What could go wrong? Well, first of all, this would be very clashing with the way our society is structured right now, right? I think that everyone agrees there's such a thing as responsibility and the way we punish someone when there's they commit a crime or, you know, address that. The penitentiary system would have to be transformed. So that's one thing. But secondly Science changes constantly, and what is believed as true or evidence-based today can be false tomorrow. So imagine then having made all these changes, okay, there's no free will, so we have to do all these things, and 10 years from now, there's another experiment that finds that there is free will. So you can see there that's a bit difficult to draw conclusions too prematurely would be problematic. So, neuroethicist's job is to know what questions can be asked to neuroscience and which to philosophy or a different area. With this in mind, I hope that then it's understood why wave A is contained within the larger wave B. It has to have a slower pace. Now, this is to say that we should not be afraid of science, but should be worried of how it is done and interpreted. So... Neuroscience hasn't arrived to replace philosophy. They work together. These two waves work together. There's a re- reciprocity between both of the waves, and this is because they both work with the same core topics. They just do different things with them.
0: Yeah, and you know, by explaining that, I think the way I see it even is that one feeds the other. So, if I got it right, so. The smaller wave which is actually the neuroscience of ethics if i'm if i'm correct actually we need it to better practice the ethics of neuroscience so we need more and more neuroscientific studies into what is free will what is consciousness what is morality why are humans moral agents and to be able to say okay we do not want a neurotechnology that's going to really affect our privacy and that's going to affect our autonomy. So in a way, they are very interdependent on one one another. I mean, if we really want to stick to the wave analogy, you cannot separate two waves from each other, right? Right. One wave perpetuates another and they cannot be separated. That's just how it is. Exactly. That's, that's such, a, such a nice analogy. Since you brought it up,
1: I'd like to just mention real quick, finish the analogy with the wave in the approaches that there are to the field for all of those that are listening to us that are interested, there's different approaches that one can have upon entering neuroethics. So depending on your background and interests, you could perhaps decide to perform theoretical work, right? Which means you like working with models, original ideas and concepts. So that's imagine that the wave uh, which emerges from the ocean, that ocean under there, that's where the philosophers or the theoretical neuroethicists are. As scuba divers, they're kind of like looking, for example, what consciousness is. Then you have people who work at the base of the wave, which is the investigative work done, whether it is empirical or non-empirical, whether it's qualitative or quantitative, it's all important and it allows the wave to grow. So picture, for example, a researcher surfing the phase of that wave at its base. Their job is to test the water, which rises from the bottom of the ocean that once around the scuba diver. Now, then picture the crest of the wave, where the practical activities of the field take place. That is where neuroethicists can see the shore, the wave's height and the wave's length. They have to know everything, what's happening within that wave. So they have to know because they work in scenarios where they actually have to make well-informed decisions with immediate consequences. So for example, picture a neuroethicist swimming at the top of the crest. Well, having climbed up there, he knows what's happening down at the bottom. And this is the work of a consultant who serves as an advisor in a neurology or neurosurgery unit, someone who's part of a committee, someone who is taking immediate action. So these are the different approaches. And with that, I think we've pictured the complete image of the wave
2: analogy. Suzanne, what what, what are your thoughts on on that? My first thought is that this this lens is incredibly important because really at the end of the day, in or out of academia, what we're working to do is ensure that we are contributing towards a future that we're all still going to find enjoyable and that we want to be a part of. And that's going to come far out of the lab into shaping kind of the social ecology of what all of this looks like moving forward. So I feel that both scope A and scope B have a lot of relevance, but when you really kind of step back and, you know, you look at this as a whole, it's really about creating a future that we want to be a part of. Totally agree.
0: Very well said. Actually, I mean, if we want to think together and maybe, you know, give some examples of both scopes to make it more relatable for the audience. I mean, if we talk about the ethics of neuroscience, right? I think we covered a lot about that during season one. What are the examples that you really related to the most that really fall under that scope?
2: Um, I'm happy to, to tackle that. I think the first thing that comes to mind was actually in season one and episode six, we were talking a little bit about biomarkers. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with the term, we're looking at some sort of measurable indicator of the severity or presence of maybe some disease state. Um, in particular, we're obviously looking at the brain. And so just, you know, for a moment, consider that, you know, you're going to be tested to determine the risk that you may have a certain brain disease. And, you know, your results come back and they indicate that you are at increased risk for epilepsy. Okay, so what do you do with that knowledge? Well, it doesn't really matter, but if you get in your car and, you know, you have a seizure and someone gets injured or, heaven forbid, killed from this accident... The question then becomes, should you be held responsible considering you knew that you were at an increased risk of a seizure? So it's really great to have this understanding of what's possible to know if you're predisposed, but then how are you going to be held accountable for that knowledge? So in terms of you know the ethical implications of some of this research, that's the example from season one that really stands out to me.
0: Very, very nicely said. And this was something that was uh, studied extensively by Dr. Matthew Bohm, which was our guest on season one. And if you missed that episode, I really recommend that you go and listen to it. It has some insights that we actually never thought of. I mean, if I find out that I am at high risk of epilepsy, you would probably think, yeah, you know, what are the odds? When is it really going to happen? 1%? What is 1%? And those are definitely things that We should think about before we apply the technology or we bring the technology to the clinic. So it's a very, very nice example.
2: And what you said in terms of the 1%, it's like at what point of probability do you hold yourself or are you going to be legally held accountable? And if we are talking about just seizures, then what about your increased likelihood for insomnia or any kind of other mental um, disturbance or abnormality? Exactly. Where is the line? And I don't know that our current systems in place, whether it be from a law standpoint, a clinical standpoint, any of those things are really equipped to handle the long-term implications of that that insight through research. And that's really where it comes out of the lab, out of academia and into our day-to-day existence. Exactly. Exactly. Very good
0: example of actually how neuroethics, you know, relates or makes sense to our everyday life. And we will talk about that even a bit more. I'm going to switch now to cover an example that you think
2: really fits nicely under scope B. I've got an example that I'd love to proffer up, if I may, just to kind of, you know, give that everyday you know, what would this look like in practical application of the ethics of neuroscientific research from scope A. It it sounds a little far-fetched, but you know, crazier things have happened, we're, you know, the precipice of this type of research right now. And I love the concept of a morality pill. (laughs) Um, Are you guys familiar or have you ever kind of done this like little thought experiment around a morality pill?
0: No, no, but please uh, share it with us.
2: (laughs) So I, I just love the idea that, okay, so let's just say that brain research ultimately indicates that there are biochemical differences in the brains of folks who maybe more readily help others. And that this understanding of the biochemical differences allows us to develop a morality pill to make people more likely to help. Well, that sounds great. <laughs> of course, we want everyone to help. That sounds lovely. But what are the implications of this? And this is where that then transitions out of, okay, you know, neuroscience of ethics. And then now we're transitioning to scope B because what are the implications of this? For instance, would we want to offer criminals, uh, for example, a lower sentence or the opportunity to avoid prison if they were willing to take a morality pill that would decrease... Or treat it, them.
0: Or treat them with a the morality Or treat
2: them again. And, and does this interfere with free will and our concept of free will? It almost reminds me a little bit of like clockwork orange in terms of like really needing to evaluate whether or not we're justified in compromising with our current concept and model of free will in an effort to reduce suffering. That's
1: a perfect example, Suzanne, of how those two come around and, you know, one spins on top of the other. And you have to know this key concept of, like, what is morality, right, in the first place? Then you see, okay, neuroscience, this is the neuroscience of this moral or this is how this neuro-drug would affect the brain what part of morality or what aspect of it would be affected by this drug or enhanced right and so then like you said it goes back and it falls on itself um like a wave
0: so now i want to be the devil's advocate okay and i want to say why should i care okay, so we are here Scientists talking with each other, or people that are interested in neuroethics. But I am I am your next door neighbor.
2: Yeah.
0: I have nothing to do with neuroscience or with neuroethics or with sciences in general. And I hear you babble about neuroethics, ethics of neuroscience, neuroscience of ethics, and it's like going in the spiral and I'm confused and I ask you, Why should I care? So just convince me. Why should why is neuroethics urgent or important?
1: Well I can mention something from the academic perspective. Well, so first of all, there's an infiltration that is obvious in not only the marketing industry, but just in general, a general interest that it's growing in the neuroscience domains that that extend into the do-it-yourself communities, no? Everyone wants to hack their brain. Everyone sees the advantages of better understanding the brain In the academic world and professional areas, but also as consumers. So, the advantages of being very smart versus having a hard time memorizing things for your test, you know, are obvious. So, I think that uh, the marketing industry and uh, the private sector have been exploiting um, the developments to direct them towards that. And we as a society need to become critical of what is permissible, what isn't, and just at least to know that whichever decision we make will have an impact in society and in terms of for example increasing the gap between the distribution of resources or acquiring certain neurotechnology to profit from it may not be fair to those places countries or people around you even in the same society that don't have the means to acquire the same technology so That's just one of the
2: reasons. Absolutely. It's kind of just coming down to some are able and some are not. Then it's just coming down to who can afford it or the haves and the have nots. And that just sounds like it's going to create more divide. So I, I, you know, I live in, in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, and, you know, I'm not working on these things in a lab. But what I can say is that there is a ton of money here being thrown into the development of technologies based on what is coming out of the lab from, you know, that very, very clinical standpoint. And again, as I kind of mentioned at the beginning, and I want to just circle back to it in terms of the urgency is just, that's really cool that we can do X, Y, or Z with this, this neuroscientific research, and we can create these products for, you know, whether it be neuro enhancement or whatever it is, there are many things that you could ponder the category. But where are the ethics committees <laughs> in terms of like, who, who's talking about this? Who's thinking about it? Because if we don't talk about it and we don't think about it outside of the lab, outside of academia, it is, as I mentioned, going to shape our social ecology. And, you know, there could be some like very runaway scenarios here that if we don't have people kind of looking at the ethical implications, or the societal implications from the get go, we may end up not having as much control over this as we'd like to.
0: I want to even add, we, we need, you know, as a, as a scientific community to start making sure we're tackling those issues to protect the citizens, protect the consumers, make sure that we are not releasing any technologies or science that might eventually harm people. But I want to even add that this is not enough. People themselves, members of society themselves, should also sit at the table and voice their opinion. I mean, you don't want decisions to be made for you, right? I don't think you want some scientist in the lab or some ethicist in their office making those decisions for you. You want to be able to communicate that together with them, with your public, with members of society, to have an open dialogue, discussions, even, even disagreements, which I think are the basis of you know, moving forward and bringing things that are ethical and responsible to the table. Absolutely. I think we need to involve more and more citizens, more and more different stakeholders, if if I can say.
2: Yeah, and I, I think it would be a concern if everyone just kind of had the collective thought of like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Well, that not applying to you or that not maybe happening during your time. That's how you end up with, you know, what's going on in terms of climate with the planet right now is just people either not believing that it's an issue or believing that it doesn't apply to them or to their generation. Yeah. But it's certainly going to shape, you know, the future of humanity. And so how we integrate this understanding into our day to day life and understanding that it does apply to us, I think is going to be. You know, instrumental in making this a household topic.
1: Can I just say this actually makes me think another big consideration for everyone to become involved is the fact that neuroscience and neurotechnology and your information are arriving to different professional areas. So I don't know if you guys have heard of neuro law, uh-huh. neuro education, neuro marketing uh-huh. uses in military, exactly. right? So as long as this technology arrives to those areas, neuroethics will follow, has to follow everywhere, right? To make sure that it is a guide for that development to happen. And with this, there's also a necessity of diverse neuroethicist profiles that we need to meet because it is not going to be the same having an expert in philosophy and neuroscience and the education area versus in the law area. With this, I just want to say that it is growing, as you guys mentioned. It's going to different domains. And as neuroethicists, there's a requirement that's increasing in having different profiles in neuroethicists.
0: Yeah. So if we can, you know, like summarize, I would say you don't have to be a philosopher to do neuroethics, you don't have to be a scientist a neuroscientist, a neuroethicist. You don't have to be anything neuro-related. If you have a brain, that's enough. That's the minimal requirement. <laughs> that's, of course, needed. We, we do not want robots to think with us. I mean, that's also that's probably not the question. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a whole other conversation, maybe, maybe to tackle on another episode. But, I mean, if I could say you don't have to be anything, in particular you don't have to be you know have those very fancy name or title to discuss neuroethics. If you care about where your society is going, if you care about the values that you want the technologies to have or to embody in your society, in your everyday life, when you go to the doctor, when you are using social media, when you are uh, shopping online, if you care about these things, if you care of not being manipulated, then you have to be thinking about neuroethics. You have to be voicing your opinion. Maybe you have your own set of ideas, your own set of observations that neuroscientists and ethicists are not seeing. You have the chance, you know. especially I, I hope you make use of that platform as well, to voice your opinion because we really need it. We need more and more voices, more and more people to really join the discussion and make your own conclusions about things not just you know what what others say and i hope this you know inspires you to to start getting involved in any way maybe maybe very quickly suzanne how do you get involved in neuroethics what is what are the steps that you take to getting involved in neuroethics
2: I'm, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm not someone who's doing research on these topics. I'm not in a lab. I'm not in academia. But I'm that person over a glass of wine who's like, have you considered? And, <laughs> I you know, like that. Oh, I no, like I'm it. serious, though. And I'm, I'm just – I'm that friend. Wine you know. I'm that things. friend. And <laughs> Yeah. I mean, hey, maybe we'll just, we'll create a round table. Maybe that's how we get this moving. But the idea is it's just, it's just stimulating a dialogue. It's picking at those, at those questions that you can tell that most of your friends maybe don't care about, haven't been exposed to. And just being like, no, just like, you know, kind of give a little pushback of like, why don't you care? Have you considered X, Y, or Z? For myself, it's, it's getting involved and connecting with. Women like yourself who do come from this other background, because I do think that that synthesis of in and out of academia, in and out of, you know, the tech sphere, whatever it may be, you really need to kind of bridge those gaps. And so conversation we're having right now, maybe, you know, it's a little early here for wine, but at some point maybe, (laughs) but that's just kind of the idea (laughs) is. (laughs) Yeah, right. But no, and that's how you get involved. You speak up. And, you know, I'm not suggesting everyone go out and do an informal live review in their spare time. But, you know, read the articles, just get curious and question everything you read. I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, our slogan, I would say is stay curious, stay critical. Mm -hmm. First, Mm -hmm. start
0: by being curious. But then, of course, make sure that you're not just swallowing everything that's being told or everything you're reading by 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 third parties. Make sure you eventually question it and come up with your own conclusion. I think this is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, we started by discussing what is neuroethics, this field, really a hot topic nowadays. And then, very nicely, we further described neuroethics with the use of this very nice wave analogy that Marielle explained to us. That really makes it much more interesting and much more clear that whatever practices are taking place under this whole branch of neuroethics actually are more intertwined than we might think. And finally, we voiced a bit the importance and the urgency of this topic, not being something that you you have to sit and write a book about. This This is not what is required of you to get into neuroethics. But already, you know, listening to this, I think, is a start. Already being curious to know what is neuroethics is already a start. So we hope with that we have inspired you to think through and think beyond neuroethics as just a field, but really something that will be embodied more and more in our everyday lives. Starting today, but definitely moving faster and faster into the future. So with that, I want to thank my co-hosts, Marielle and Suzanne, very much. I think this was a very lively discussion. Thank you. thank you. And their insight is most definitely appreciated. And I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in, for sticking with us, and for yeah, starting this new year, this new season with us again. And hopefully we will keep on providing you amazing content on the neuroethics police podcast and with that i want to tell you stay curious stay critical and till next time